I told Chuck, I'll wait until he gets back there. Uh, one thing that we, we are thankful to God, uh, when they told me last night, uh, Morgan was sick, and, and Jeffrey was gone, and I said, okay, Lord, he wanted to sing, get the person who sang. And uh, thank God uh, we had Chuck doing that. And so um, I'm grateful that uh, the Lord continues to provide for his local, this local church. Let's pray. I'm eternal and everlasting. Father, we are thankful for your love and your mercy. Thankful that you are an awesome God. Majestic in all your ways. You are an omniscient God. Omniscient God. We cannot fathom your wisdom. Nor can we understand the outworkings of your plan. But for the little we understand, we thank you. We join the elect in heaven to say to you, may all glory, honor, dominion, power, and majesty belong to you, for you deserve them. We continue to wonder greatly how you can take earthen verses like us, turn us to your children, and cause us to worship you on this planet. We have gathered this morning to study a portion of your word, we realize that the human mind is incapable of understanding anything that is spiritual apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So it is a request that God the Holy Spirit, who is the perfect communicator, will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this morning. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We're still in First Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 12 and 13, really. That's what we're going to spend this morning, verses 12 and 13. Although we First Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. Now, before we even get started, let me refresh your mind and say this to you. Personally, I bemoan the fact there is very little doctrine taught today in the local churches. And that many Christians do not recognize that the foundation of correct application of the word of God is doctrine. You have to have the doctrine. Now I want to illustrate it this way. You see, in families, very rare, I mean they do, Every now and then, they fight each other, usually over inheritance. But they otherwise, they try to be in unity with each other. And that unity is based on the fact that they understand clearly that they are from the same parents. And whenever there's a fight, it's because they forgot that. So if you take that and realize that the way you can maintain unity is if you all go back to the basic, there's a, a truth that you must hold on to. Without knowing that truth, your application will be shallow. This is what we have today. Now, it's one thing to say, love of one another. Have unity among you. What does that mean? If we don't understand the fundamental basis for that unity, people can pretend all you want. Take around you, look around you, you see your fellow believer, they don't look like you, they don't talk like you. Now how are you going to have unity? How are you going to love them consistently? Yeah, unless you're pretending. Or you do one of these things people do is, yeah, we gather maybe around here or whatever believers gather, they smile and all that. But when they go home or see each other on the street, they won't even recognize the person they, they were in the same church with. You know the reason? They are not grounded in what it is they are asked to do. So that's why I use the illustration of, of siblings because they are grounded on the fact that they come from the same womb or the same father. 
That is the basis for them to try to be in unity with each other. So unless we understand the basis for unity and diversity in Christ, we might be pretending. So this morning, we'll continue with doctrine. In fact, that's all we're going to do this morning. Doctrine. But that doctrine is to help us understand the basis for the message that unity and diversity are essential in the body of Christ, that is in the church of Christ. Now this message, we stated because we read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, that says, the body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, so the message that we stated, as we stated last week also, places us on certain responsibilities. The first responsibility that we stated, as they considered last week, is that you should recognize the unity and diversity of the church of Christ. In other words, this must be grounded in you. It's not something that you hear once or you listen once and you think you are grounded in it. No. It has to be a constant thing in your thinking. That's why James could say, a man who reads the Bible looks away, forgets everything he read. And that's why he's acting the way he, he or she is acting. So, this message that you should recognize the unity and diversity in the church of Christ requires that you understand the basis of why we have to say that. Anyway, we stated previously that there are two reasons given in this subsection that you should carry out this responsibility. The first reason is that the Holy Spirit stated this truth through Apostle Paul, by way of analogy of, of the body, with many parts in verse 12. Now the second reason is because of the two examples of unity and the two examples of diversity in Christ provided in verse 13. Now we have considered the two examples of diversity that involved uh, what we studied last week, that first of all, the diversity involved diversity of ethnicity, which was, by the way, present in the early church. And we'll push on today. If it's not there in, the, in churches where at least there are more than one uh, group of people living, you wonder what Christianity is all about. Now, so, we presented it also in terms of slave and free in the church of Christ. Which, by the way, was the case in Corinth. The church in Corinth consisted of Jews and Gentiles. They also considered of slaves and free people. So all of this, the apostles said, you have that diversity. But they got to be this unity. So we proceed though to exam, example, uh, examine then the uh, two examples of the unity in the church of Christ that are both related to the Holy Spirit. Now we asserted that the two examples of the unity in the body of Christ, that is the church, are related to the Holy Spirit because of the phrase one spirit. Look at what we said, one spirit that appears twice in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. Look at that, it says, the first one is in the sentence, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. And the second is the sentence, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now we will, of course, examine this in detail, but we simply cited them to show that the phrase one spirit occurs twice in verse 13. Now someone may wonder how we are sure that the phrase 
refers to the Holy Spirit. It is primarily the context that enables us to be certain. Apostle Paul refers the Holy Spirit in connection with confessing Christ as Lord in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3. 1 Corinthians 12 that we're looking at. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 reads, Therefore I tell you, that no one is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now the, I'll come back to this passage later on. Now the Holy Spirit, the apostle mentioned in verse 3, was then described using the phrase, the same Spirit. Look at verse 4. Of the same chapter 2. Look at verse 4. It reads, There are different kinds of spirit, uh, gifts, but the same Spirit. The same Spirit. So the same Holy Spirit then is described in connection with spiritual gifts. Using the same phrase that that one Spirit. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 9 says, To another faith by the same Spirit. Some Holy Spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. So there should be no doubt then that is the, uh, the phrase one Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 refers to the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, in his epistle to the Ephesians, the apostle leaves no doubt that the phrase refers to the Holy Spirit as we uh, read in Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 18. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 reads, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now here you see, in this verse, the pronoun him refers to Jesus Christ, through whom we have access to God the Father. Now since the apostle mentioned Jesus Christ and the Father, then the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, must be the one the apostle meant when he wrote the phrase, one spirit. Because he mentioned him, Christ, Father, so it must be the Spirit, must be the Holy Spirit. So, we are confident then that the phrase, one spirit, in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 refers to Holy Spirit. Be that then as it may, the first example of unity in the church of Christ is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now, as I'm emphasizing this, I keep emphasizing that unless you go back to the fundamental, the basic thing that binds believers, you have to know the basics. Now, when the Bible tells us to love every human being, do you know why? He said every human being is created in the image of God. That's the reason. Now, when he said for us to love one another, so that the world will know that we are his disciples, is because we are in Christ. So now, there's a level of distinction. So you can see that what we are dealing with is to tell us how we come to have this unity. This unity is not from us. It is something God made. Our responsibility is to maintain it. To make it a reality. It didn't come from us. God did that. So that's why I say, we, and this is how we uh, recognize the unity, how it's formed, because he said, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Now the word baptized is translated from a, a Greek verb that has several meanings. The word may mean to wash or to purify in a ceremonial manner so that something is Purified. It is in this sense that the word is used to express the surprise of a Pharisee when Jesus did not wash his hand before meal. 
He didn't go through the elaborate way they do it. And so he was spawned according to Luke chapter 11 verse 38. Luke chapter 11 verse 38. Luke chapter 11 verse 38. It is, but the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Now, see, the word there is really that Jesus did not baptize. <laughs> so, but here it's best to translate the word wash. Now, the, the word may also refer to the use of water in a religious ceremony for purpose of Renewing or establishing a relationship with God, so it means to plunge, to dip, to baptize again or to wash. Thus it was used in the sense of dedicatory cleansing with the ministry of John the Baptist, as in John chapter 3, verse 23. John chapter 3 verse 23. John chapter 3 verse 23 reads, Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, because there was plenty of water, and people were constantly coming to be baptized. Now, it is in the sense, in the sense that the word is also used in the Christian ritual of initiation into the community of believers after the death of Jesus Christ and resurrection, as we see, for example, in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. In other words, the ritual water baptism is to initiate somebody into the community of believers. It doesn't say it has no other thing that is symbolic to show you belong to the body of Christ. And those who are around cannot say, oh yeah, you're a believer, so they cannot keep their eyes on you to see how you conduct yourself as a believer. It reads, Acts 8 verse 12 reads, But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now the Greek word may mean to baptize or to plunge, as we said, in the sense of causing someone to have an extraordinary experience. In other words, to baptize can mean to have an extraordinary experience. It is in this sense that the word is used by or in the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ to describe his death on the cross that he will experience as he talked to the disciples according to Luke chapter 12 verse 50. Luke chapter 12 verse 50. Luke chapter 12, verse 50. It is, But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Now the, that sentence, I have a baptism to undergo, of the NIV, is more literally from the Greek, this way it is, I have a baptism to be baptized. I have a baptism to be baptized. Which really is an idiom that means to be overwhelmed by some difficult experience or ordeal. So in this case, baptism means 
to, to overcome or to be overwhelmed with some painful experience. Now, does in baptism again may mean simply to experience something extraordinary? In which, in this passage in, in Luke, refers to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, it is in the sense of to initiate, to I- initiate that the word is used. So the apostle used what is known as the eros tense in the Greek when he wrote the sentence, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, implying that what he wrote is something that happened in the past for all believers, regardless of their ethnicity or their social standing in the church in Corinth, and of course, himself as well. So the thing that happened to each believer occurred at different times. It is something that happens at the point of salvation. Now believers were saved at different times. That aside, the error stands and indicates that what the apostle wrote about it's not something that is repeated, but that which happens once. Once we understand what it is, you understand that that's what God the Holy Spirit did with you, did with the next believer, next believer. So that's what you have in common. So if you understand that, then you know why you have that responsibility to maintain the unity in the body of Christ. So anyway, the problem we have to deal with though uh, concerns what the apostle really meant in the sentence of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 that we're studying where he said, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. We need to understand that. Now before we get to the understanding of what the apostle meant in this first sentence, let me state that some scholars interpret the entire verse 13 to be concerned primarily with baptism with the Spirit. That's how they view it. Now that notwithstanding, it is our interpretation that the verse concerns two different kinds of baptism involving the Holy Spirit. But, before we get to this, we shouldn't consider the problem of translation of the verbal phrase Look at that again. It says, baptized by one spirit into one body. That's a translation problem. And we need to deal with that first. Now the problem lies with how to translate a Greek preposition that appears in the Greek, in the verbal phrase, uh, baptized by one spirit into one body. Now the Greek preposition it's a, it's a word, N, E-N, N. And that has several meanings. But in our passage, there are three possible meanings, which are in, with, or by. Those are three possible ways uh, to interpret in a particular verse. That the Greek word N here can mean in, it can mean with, it can mean by. Now, the question is which of these meanings best fit the context. Now, some scholars choose the meaning in as reflected in the English Standard Version, the New English Translation, and the New Revised Standard Version. They all use the word, the meaning in. So that the reading of the first part of verse Certain is, this is where it's now is using that meaning. They, this is what they, they translated it. It says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now the problem of this option is that it makes the entire first sentence difficult to understand since it does not identify the one uh, who baptized believers. He doesn't identify it. 
Furthermore, in all passages, I'm going to, um, you know, we're going to touch all of them, uh, pretty much all of them, maybe one I may not touch, but I think we'll touch all the uh, passages where that is used in Matthew 3, verse 11, Mark 1, 8, uh, Luke 3, 16, John uh, 1, 33, Acts 1, 5, and Acts 11, 16. I'm going to come back to all these passages. I'm just uh, rattling it off for now so you know that I'm saying that in all the places where this proposition is used, uh, in connection with the Holy Spirit, the baptizer is clearly identified as the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly. However, he cannot be the baptizer in this verse. I'm going to argue on that later on, but he cannot be the baptizer. Now anyway, so that is problem with those who use that many in. Now the second option, remember I said there are three possible ways in, with, by. So the second option or, or interpretation of the Greek preposition is to use the meaning with, implying that the Holy Spirit is the means of the baptism. That would be the implication. Now those who contend that the preposition in should be understood as expressing means do so primarily because to them if that were not the case, then it is difficult to understand when the prophecy of Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit is fulfilled. An example of the prophecy in view is given in Luke chapter 3 verse 16. Luke chapter 3 verse 16. Luke chapter 3 verse 16. Luke 3 verse 16. That's what they are worried about. Now how does that then get fulfilled? Here it is. Jesus answered them all. I mean, John answered them all. I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come. The Thorns of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's why they contain the word with. Now so those with this interpretation assume then that Jesus Christ is the one doing the baptism or the baptizing here in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. Because of this passage like this. Now, this interpretation, though, has one thing going for it, which is that the use of the meaning or the word wait leads to a consistent rendering of the Greek, of the Greek preposition in, wherever there is a mention of the Holy Spirit in connection with baptism, as done here in Luke 3.16, and in other similar passages that we we'll touch uh, later on. Now this notwithstanding, the problem of this interpretation is twofold. First, there is nothing in the passage that indicates that Jesus Christ is the baptizer. That's the big problem, actually to me, one of the biggest problems. In fact, it does not make sense for Jesus to be the one doing the baptism since the one that phrase one body in this passage is a reference to the church, the body of, of Christ. So how is he baptizing people himself doing it into himself? Secondly, this interpretation is based primarily on the on bias of interpreting or interpretation regarding when the uh, baptism with the spirit occurred. So those are uh, two reasons that I believe that meaning weight cannot be uh, the case too. So the difficulties then of the first two interpretations lead us to reject them and opt for a third interpretation. The third interpretation uh, takes the Greek preposition to mean by, that is, through 
the agency or means of. Now the meaning means of may also be taken as through, through, as reflected in the new century version. Now that notwithstanding, or that aside, the meaning by has the implication that the Holy Spirit is the agent of baptism involved in the sentence of First Corinthians 12 verse 13. Again, it says, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. So we say the Holy Spirit is the agent when it's say by the Holy Spirit. Now those who reject this interpretation do so on the ground that there is nowhere else in the Bible that this idea of baptism by the Spirit is taught. That's the only reason they reject it. Is that there's no other place in the Bible where you can find this concept or this doctrine of baptism by the Holy Spirit. Because everything we've seen in the other passages is really by Jesus Christ. So they say this is very strange. For that reason, they can accept it. Now, but to me, and that's not a strong argument, in that this could, uh, could be the only place the, the apostle taught this truth. That could be the only place. Now, the, that a doctrine is taught or mentioned only in one passage in the scripture does not mean it's not true. For example, the apostle Paul had already indicated to the Corinthians that believers will judge angels through his rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. 1 Corinthians First Corinthians chapter three, uh, 6, verse 3. Now, this is one of those things. The Holy Spirit makes a, a, a reference, a passing reference to it. Because it's not necessary that we know what it is right now. Because whatever the function is, when it is time, we will do it. So he didn't explain to us what it's all, that, uh, what it's all about. When we studied, I uh, made that clear to you. We don't know what it's all about. But this is a clear fact from here. Say, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So then, should we reject this doctrine of believers judging angels because it is not taught elsewhere in the scripture? Should we say then, Paul, you cannot be right. What the Holy Spirit told you is not correct. Can we say that? I don't think so. Now, of course, um, since we cannot deny that, I mean, I'm, all I'm saying is, you can say, okay, well, Paul, because no other place did you teach this. Nor did any other apostle teach this. Therefore, it cannot be true. And I'm saying, can we say that? Of course not. So to say that because there is no other place where the doctrine of baptism by the Holy Spirit is taught implies it could not be true. It's not a strong argument. Now, I hope you've seen what we're doing when we study. How I'm arguing things. This is something that I keep emphasizing to all of us. We have to be Christians who are so immersed in the truth that we can argue without getting angry. Without getting ready to fight. You must have what I call a sanctified method of reasoning. In other words, go through a point. This is, again, like I said to you, the reason the whole world today, especially in this country now, people are so gullible. Whatever they hear on the news, they take the runner with it. It's true. They have lost this ability to reason. People no longer have that ability to reason because, you know, see, the brain has to be developed, right? You have to pump in some truth to cause a person to begin to think differently. When you don't have it, whatever anyone says is true. You go with it. But if you have this ability to reason, somebody says something, you say, okay, one, two, three, four. How does that fit with the scripture? If it doesn't, you discuss it. No matter how many people believe it, it'll be true. 
But if you are not able to reason, you are one of those that just, you know, you go by, you know, whatever feels good or whatever. You just do. You go with the crowd. Because people don't have this ability to reason. And this is very important in the spiritual life. Because it helps you to deal with life in general. You be a person that's able to reason through things. Now I realize, and I have to be honest with you, because we've studied that. This thing I'm talking about decreases as that number increases. What number? Aging number. As you get older, your ability to do that decreases. But if you don't have it right now, it gets worse when you're really old. So you must develop this ability. That's one of the things when we study, you see how we argue things, try to convince you that this is the case. That's what you should do as a believer. Listen to people, yes. They think through with what you have in the truth in your soul to know when people are just blowing a lot of what I call hot air and not the truth. But unfortunately, we live in a time people are almost incapable of doing that simply because as in a conversation with uh, somebody who called me yesterday, and, uh, you know, he had gone to a church and uh, he said, the, the pastor said, well, I'm not going to make it long. I just, and he said, the pastor wasn't kidding. Within 10 minutes, he was through with the sermon. I said, mm, okay. That's where the problem comes in. Because we're all now used to getting all these 5 minutes, 10 minutes. Nothing to stretch our mind, to think through things. Now, of course, in conversation with one of our members, uh, who was you know, going back reading the book of Nehemiah, and uh, this individual pointed to me about what uh, the person read in the 8th chapter. And I said, yeah. And of course, the person said, that's what you do every, every Sunday. I said, yeah, that's, that's for sure. What he says, they were interpreting, interpreting. Now, these are people with the same language, and yet they have been interpreted to them. So there's more to it. You have to be able to do this. So that's what we're doing here is we're trying to develop your ability to reason as a believer with facts based on the scripture, not human opinion. Nonetheless, though, when people say, well, because we can, you know, it's only one place, we can accept it. So I come back and say, well, should we reject every other doctrine in the Bible because it's only one place? And I don't think so. Nonetheless, though, the doctrine of baptism by the Holy Spirit, though, was hinted in the promise of Christ when he taught that believers will be in him as recorded for us in John chapter 14, verse 20. John chapter 14, verse 20. John chapter 14, verse 20. It reads, On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I believe we'll get back to that before it's all over. So in any event, the baptism, then in the sentence of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, could not possibly refer to baptism with the Holy Spirit. Could not. For you see, in all passages in the New Testament where the baptism with the Spirit is clearly in view, the baptizer is identified as Jesus Christ. While the Holy Spirit is clearly identified as the means of the baptism and the recipients of the baptism are identified. Now this is the pattern expressed by all the gospel writers. Now we've already noted this usage in Luke 3.16. Now Matthew wrote about the baptism with the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 3 verse 11. Matthew, 
chapter 3 verse 11. Matthew chapter 3 verse 11. It reads, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals are not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now the baptizer here is Jesus Christ. They baptize the believers. While the means of doing so is the Holy Spirit. Now Mark, in his gospel, also identified Jesus Christ as the one baptizing and the Holy Spirit as the means, as we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 8. Now, those are, now the passages are rattled off at the beginning. That's what we're going through now. Mark chapter 1, verse 8. Mark chapter 1, verse 8 reads, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now John, the apostle, follows the same pattern of identifying the baptizer as Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as the means of the baptism as he gave the testimony regarding John the Baptist in John 1 verse 33 John chapter 1 verse 33 John chapter 1 verse 33 John chapter 1 verse 33 reads I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So in all these passages in the gospel dealing with the baptism with the Holy Spirit, there is no indication of the Holy Spirit doing the baptism. None. Now the only case where the one baptizing is not clearly specified but implied is when Jesus Christ promised the disciples that they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 verse 5. 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 It is, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now even in this case, it should be clear that Jesus is the baptizer. Now for a comparison of the baptism with the Holy Spirit is really made with reference to John's baptism. Now since John himself prophesied that Jesus Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit, then it is clear that the one who will do the, bap- the baptism here uh, that Jesus spoke of in Acts 1 verse 5 is himself. So if in all cases... Of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is clearly specified as the baptizer. And the Holy Spirit, as he means, then it is difficult to see how Jesus Christ is the baptizer in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 that we are studying. Furthermore, there is no indication in these passages that we have cited that those to be baptized are to be baptized into another medium or into another element as body. Now that's, you know, that's what is suggested in that phrase when it's in the passage we're studying, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, when it says, into one body. 
All the things that we had is baptized with. By. But we never see baptized into. This is the only place we see baptized into the body. This in and of itself then suggests that there is a difference between what John the Baptist prophesied and Jesus promised and what Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. There's said to be a difference. So the point is that the description then in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 not fit in this pattern of identifying the baptizer and the means of the baptism should indicate that it could not possibly be the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Could not possibly be. So, what then is baptism by the Spirit? In this first half of First Corinthians 12, starting, what is it? Again, we state that it is not the baptism with the Spirit. No. Does this have to do with water baptism? As some contend. Instead, it is a ministry of the Holy Spirit whereby all believers are placed in Christ or initiated into Christ. Now, see if you begin to understand this, I'm going to continue to hammer on this. If you understand, you are in one body. Now, this is stronger than being in one family. That's why I started with that illustration of, you know, all these things are just out of work, as you say. That people in the family, they, they just at each other's truth all the time, fighting because of, again, money or some other things. But this, this, they all realize we're in this, we come from the same womb or with the same parents. Therefore, they, whatever it is, their mind keeps going back to that. No matter what it is, no matter how many they become to each other, they go back to that. So, if you come and understand this truth, that every believer has been taken in by the Holy Spirit and placed in the body of Christ. That's what's common. Everyone here who is a believer is in that one body. That means we have something stronger than the human family. And if you understand that, that should guide your thinking, not only when you're here or other place, in your most secret place where you live. You live that way. You think that way. Because you understand you and that believer who is clearly different from you are. That you belong to the same body. You are in the same body. So, this is why we say this is very important. Now recall though, the context of 1 Corinthians 12 really is a misunderstanding of spiritual gifts. That's the context. Now in the church of Cor- at Corinth, on the one hand, there were Christians who thought that because they did not have all the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of speaking in tongues, that they were not in Christ. That's part of the prophecy. Well, I don't have this gift. I don't speak in tongues. I'm not in Christ. <laughs> no. On the other hand, though, others will say that they have the Holy Spirit because they speak in tongues. And anyone who does not speak in tongues does not have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the apostle deals with this confusion. That's really what this, this doctrine does, is to deal with this confusion. On one hand, you say, well, I'm not in Christ. Because I don't speak in tongues. I don't have all that. The person says, yeah, I have it. Therefore, I'm in Christ. You're not. The person says, oh, don't go too far. Let's get back to reality. So that reality is why he, he gave this doctrine that we're studying. So I'm going to make some point about this in terms of what he's dealing with in terms of clarification. First, the apostle makes it clear that no one is a Christian if the Holy Spirit is not in him. 
That's what he has made clear. Now it is this true that he expressed in the passage we started previously and I told you I was going to come back to it. But uh, you, know, you don't need to write it down again. But uh, we'll, we'll, you just listen to me read it. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3. Or you can look through it since it's still the same chapter. He says, Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now here, the point of the apostle, that's the point that he made at this time. See, at the time of writing, Caesar was considered Lord. And anyone else who calls another person other than Caesar Lord will be in danger of forfeiting his life. Thus, for anyone to have the courage of saying that Jesus Christ is Lord, must be doing so because of the Holy Spirit in the individual who produces or who provides courage, as was the case with those believers who received the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Hence, with this point, the apostle has in effect demonstrated that the Holy Spirit will be in a person without him actually speaking in tongues. That's the thing. So, now he's removed the rug under those who think the other way. Second, the apostle asserted that each Christian has a spiritual gift. As we've already studied, and I'm going to read it in detail just to continue the flow of our exposition. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 11. First Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. It is now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. So following this assertion of different spiritual gifts in the church of Christ, the apostle indicated that each believer is a part of the body. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 of that says, the body is a unit. That was started. That's why I said the body is a unit. Though it's made up of many parts, and though, uh, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. Now, so to explain how believers then are in Christ, the apostle then writes that first uh, part of verse 13. When he says again, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. In effect, the apostle provides an explanation of how each believer is in the body of Christ. So that there is unity in the body of Christ. Now, we're coming to here is some of these things. That's why I keep emphasizing the point that you need to understand the basic doctrine. Because you cannot say to me, I love Jesus Christ. So, I hear people say, oh, the, well, he, he's in love with the Lord. He loves the Lord. Yeah. But he can't stand the next believer. I can see how that can happen. It's just, it's inconsistent. Except that the person doesn't know what they're talking. They, 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 whatever it is that they, they're going on, it's not grounded on the truth of the doctrine that we are looking at here, understanding that you are in Christ in the same way, and that all of you, in this case all of us believers, are in one body. And this is how this happened to be. So the apostle is trying to tell us how this happened to be. So in teaching this truth then, the Holy Spirit, through Apostle Paul, explained to us how then the promise 
of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples before going to the cross was fulfilled. And I'm referring to the passage I said I'll come back to in John chapter 14 verse 20. John chapter 14 verse 20. I told you I would come back to that. Now let's go back to the gospel of John chapter 14 verse 20. Now notice what it says. On that day you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me. You are in me. That's you are in Christ. And I am in you. Now that's a hard thing to understand. How are you in Christ? That's what he says. And you are in me. How is that? Now without this teaching of the baptism by the Holy Spirit given in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. There is no explanation anywhere else in the scripture as to how believers uh, come to be in Christ. A truth that Apostle Paul emphasized so many times in his epistles. For example, to consider what he said about the being in Christ in Romans 8 verse 1. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Romans 8 verse 1 reads, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Now so, how else can we be in Christ except for the baptism by the Holy Spirit? So the baptism by the Holy Spirit is purely the work of God, the Holy Spirit, that involves our position in Christ. And has nothing whatsoever to do with our experience. We are placed in the body of Christ. And that is what ensures the unity in the body of Christ. It's a reality that is truth. What we are being challenged is to make it so that this truth will be evident. It is there. It is a fact. Whether you do agree or not. You are in union with every, you know, you are in union with Christ, and therefore you are in unity with your fellow believer. You may or may not agree; that's your business. But you have the responsibility to prove that, to live it out. That's what we have here. So, what we're saying is, in effect, then the common thing that we share is being in, in the body of Christ. And so, despite the diversity, we observe in a local congregation there is unity. In the body of Christ, because every believer has been initiated in Christ or has been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. As that is the sense of that sentence again of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 when it says, We were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Now that phrase one body refers to the church of Christ. Now this is because we have already noted that the body of Christ is the same as the church, as we may gather again from, first, from uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Read. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in everywhere. So the point is that each believer then has been initiated or put into the body of Christ, the church, so that the example of unity of believers in the church is their shared position in Christ that results from the Holy Spirit placing each believer in the body of Christ. So anyhow, the first example then of unity of believers in Christ is the baptism by the Spirit that refers to union of believers with Christ or the placement of believers in Christ. 
So this brings us then to the second example of unity in the body of Christ. Now the second example of unity in the body of Christ is, as we stated previously, related though to the Holy Spirit, and that is given in the second clause of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. Look again where it says, And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now like the first clause, this clause again presents interpretation difficulties. But before we examine it, let us look or consider the word drink. As that will be important in the interpretation of the clause. Now again, the reason I like to use, if you begin to think about things and realize when a person says a word, you have to know, what is he saying? What is she saying? If you're not sure, ask. I mean, I just, somebody wrote me something on email and I read it. And I thought something, I said, hmm, if that's what, what the person meant, that's very, you know, <laughs> not being nice, period. I fired back. I said, what do you mean? And the person explained. And what he, he, this person explained to me, I just know where I can read it out from what he wrote. But that's what he was thinking. But he wrote something that didn't come close to what he was thinking. So it's, that's why we go through war study. That begins to, if you, if you have developed this ability of war study, when somebody says something, you want to know, what do you really mean? What do you really mean? People can say things, but what do they really mean? So here we begin with the word, very simple word, drink. What does that mean? Well, the word drink is translated from a Greek word that may mean to give drink, to cause someone, as Apostle uh, Paul used the Greek word in his quotation from Proverbs 25 verse 21. Proverbs 25 verse 21, but I'm not going to go there. Let's go to Romans chapter 12 verse 20. That's what Paul was quoting. Romans 12 verse 20. He, he was actually quoting from Proverbs 25 21. But let's go to what he actually quoted. Romans 12 verse 20. It reads, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, of course, most times people think about, oh yeah, that means you do good to him. You hurt him. I mean, you put some fire on him. No, not really. That's really they say that's a fire, but that's not really what it means. Probably what it really means is that by you being nice to a person, you are going to, what you do will cause to uh, produce a feeling of uh, contrition on that person or that that person will feel bad or ashamed of what he has done to you because you did nice to him. It's not really not that of hurting the person in the sense of oh, God is going to get you. No, that's not that. Anyway, the Greek word though may figuratively be used in the sense of to participate. To participate in something as it is used to indicate participation of nations in idolatry or immorality of Babylon, revealed, mentioned in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. Now, this is one of those things I, I find intriguing. People uh, when they don't know much of history of interpretation of the Bible, they come up with all kinds of things. Uh, there are some today who think the United States is Babylon. They didn't know that prior to that they thought it was the Roman Empire. <laughs> prior to that, so you see, they thought about all this. It all depends when Christ actually comes. That will be when we know who that Babylon is. But right now, people can guess all they want. We don't know. It reads. Revelation 14, it reads, A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her idolatries. 
So in our passage though, of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, the Greek word has the sense of to partake. Not to drink in that sense of the word, but to partake of something conceived in terms of being given water or another fluid to drink, or liquid to drink. Now the sense will become clearer though as we examine the clause of the First Corinthians 12, 13 that we're looking at when it says, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now this notwithstanding, the apostle used an arrow's tense in the Greek to indicate that the drinking involved here in this passage is something that is not continuous, but something that occurs once in the past. Now furthermore, the apostle used a passive voice in the Greek, implying that there is an agent that causes a believer to drink or participate in what is described in the clause that we're considering. Well, time for break. After break, we take it. <laughs> 